things this morning at Exodus 21 to 17 and Romans 7, uh, 1 to 13. So Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the, sins, uh, the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. And then Romans chapter 7. Verses 1 to 13. Romans 7, 1 to 13. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a, ma a, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin it was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. 
So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what was good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might be utterly sinful. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, So we come to Romans chapter 7, a famously difficult and complex passage. So bear with me today. I really encourage you to have your Bibles open so that you can follow along as much as you can. It'll be on the screen as well. Uh, just so we try and to unpack this and learn what God has to say to us today. Uh, we're going to need his help, so let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Romans, which presents to us your glorious gospel and the glorious assurance that comes from it in such amazing images and ways and words. Uh, We pray, Father, that it would, by your Spirit, be instilled deep within our hearts today so that we might learn what life truly is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love uh, buddy cop movies. Anyone else? Yes? Fantastic. Just awesome comedies. You know, I'm thinking of things like um, uh, Lethal Weapon, Hot Fuzz, The Heat, uh, the other guys, you know, that one with Will Ferrell and uh, Mark Wahlberg, uh, so great, love them. Watch one with uh, Jackie on Friday night. Uh, and I noticed that uh, as I was thinking about um, these sorts of movies, that they work because of one particular element to them. They work as, as comedies, as dramas, uh, because of the two characters involved, right? Because you have, on one hand, uh, the, the, the straight-laced good cop. You know, he follows the rules, goes by the procedures. He does the paperwork. He's he's a straight-laced kind of guy. You have that guy, right? But then he's got to be paired with his worst nightmare, (laughs) the rebel cop, (laughs) the leather jacket-wearing, motorcycle-riding, shoot-first-ask-questions-later kind of cop, the guy who's quite happy to bend the law a bit if it kind of suits him when it suits him. In fact, when you think about it, um, it's not just buddy cop movies that that have this kind of dynamic, is it? Like lots of movies, lots of stories have these two types of characters, the the lawful character and the lawless character. And I wonder uh, if it's because it represents two basic ways to approach life. You can approach life in a lawful way, look for the rules to obey and follow them, or you can approach life in a lawless way, Find out how you can break and bend the rules. You can be lawful, you can be lawless. And so perhaps it's not too surprising then that the Bible often brings these two types of people together. Last week's passage, uh, we saw Paul imagine a lawless person. Someone who takes the concept of Christian grace, forgiveness, and misinterprets it, misuses it, so to their own ends. They use it as a license to do whatever they want. Paul teaches us that that's not actually freedom at all, but in fact slavery to sin. That was last week. Then today in uh, chapter 7, he switches tack. He describes, imagines, a different type of person. He describes not a lawless person, but a lawful person. 
Not someone who finds excuses to break the law, but someone who tries their very best to follow it. And surprisingly, Paul is going to argue that this kind of person can be just as enslaved to sin as the lawless person. This passage today, Romans 7, is going to help us to see how that could possibly be and what we can do about it. And to help us through it, because it is complex, uh, we're going to use three images. Three images. I'm going to show how sin is like an assassin, the gospel is like a marriage, and the law is like a spotlight. Okay? An assassin, a marriage, and a spotlight. So to start with sin is an assassin. Uh, if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, you see that Paul addresses a particular sort of people. He says, those who know the law. Those who know the law. What's he talking about? Well, first of all, I have to ask, what is the law? What is the law? Well, uh, Paul's referring to the Jewish law. The Jewish law, what they would call the Torah. Uh, that could be referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. But it could also refer to the commandments that those books contain. And those commandments are summed up, as we heard before in our reading from Exodus, in the Ten Commandments. Very famous, as uh, most people, most Christians would know about. In fact, most non-Christians would know about as well, the Ten Commandments. So Paul's referring to people who know that law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah. So who are they? Well, remember that Paul is talking to two groups of people in the Roman church. Okay? There's the Jewish Christians, okay? and they obviously know the law. They've, they've grown up with it. They know it so well. That they know it in the way that we know the alphabet. They can just recite it without even thinking about it. They're completely grounded in the law of Moses, the first five books. But he's also talking to Greek Christians. So these are uh, Greeks who have become Christians at some point. And they know the law too. In a different way though, because uh, most likely they used to be, before they were Christians, um, fans of Judaism. They were, they were God-fearers, proselytes. They knew the law because they, had, uh, they were um, attracted to the, the Jewish law. And then they became Christians, of course. They were taught it, much like we teach the Old Testament in our churches today. So we've got Greek Christians and Jewish Christians, and they all know the law. So Paul's now referring to this particular aspect of their religious life. Okay. He's drawing attention to the fact that they, are, they know and obey the law. So let's skip ahead to verse 5 to unpack a little bit more. Uh, Paul says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Hang on. How is this possible? How can the, God's law arouse sin in someone? Isn't that like saying that eating organic broccoli causes cancer? Like, it doesn't. It's good. Surely it's good for you. The law is good. It's God's gift. doesn't seem right. We'll have to go a bit further on to verse 7 and 8 to find out what's going on here. What shall we say then? Is law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Okay. Here we see the first way that sin is like an assassin because it infiltrates the human heart. A clever assassin, we might see in a movie, might uh, sneak into a building, uh, pass security in a sneaky way. Like they might um, hit to a ride, for example, in something that's meant to be there, like a, a laundry truck or uh, a, 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 a diplomatic car or something like that, right? They infiltrate the building by finding a way in which is uh, legit. In the same way, sin looks for the opportunity to infiltrate the human heart by hitching a ride on what is meant to be there. In this case, God's law. Paul is saying that somehow, knowing that God forbids something makes us want it all the more. Does that resonate with your life? We could quote the old saying, forbidden fruit tastes the sweetest. Right? And I get there's something true about that, isn't there? But we need to go a little bit deeper. Maybe a better example is, is me rushing down a crowded train platform, well, running to catch my, my train. And I see the yellow line and the sign that says, do not cross the yellow line. And yet, almost without thinking about it, I cross it anyway. Because it's convenient to me. Maybe even because it's, I just want to. What's going on? Well, maybe I just want to show the rule maker, whoever it is, the faceless person, that they're not boss of me and I'll do what I want to do. And I think maybe this is what Paul is on about. There's, there's something very human about the urge to rebel against a lawgiver. To rebel against a lawgiver. One writer puts it like this. The law can be misinterpreted and misrepresented as a taking away of our freedom and an attack on our dignity, and so can be made an occasion of resentment and rebellion against God. Remember what sin is. Sin is this dark, internal, spiritual power that compels us to self-rule instead of God-rule, to depose God from the throne of our lives and instead to sit down in his Place. So Paul is saying that knowing God's law gives us the opportunity to hate it because it stirs up our sinful desire for self-rule. But now some of you are thinking, Pete, I'm just not like that. I'm not the sort of person. I never cross the yellow line. I don't even go near it. I keep a meter's distance. I'm the sort of person who doesn't look for opportunities to break rules, but I love following rules. I, I like to make sure that I keep within the boundaries of the rules. And so you might think, well, Paul must be talking about other people, not me. To you, Paul would then say, beware. Because the sin is like an assassin in another way, in that it becomes in disguise. Notice that of all the Ten Commandments, Paul picks out, do not covet here. Now, at first I kind of thought maybe it's just a random one. It's number 10, in case you're wondering. But a pretty, Paul's a pretty deliberate kind of guy, and I think he's probably picked it quite on purpose. Many people read through the Ten Commandments like a checklist. Tick, tick, tick. Haven't murdered today? Tick, pretty good. Haven't lied? Tick, good. Haven't dishonored my mum or dad? Awesome, tick, right? Go through it like a checklist. 
And Paul would have resonated with that kind of thinking because, remember, he is uh, an ex-member of a group of a religious elite called the Pharisees. And and they like to see sin as an external thing you do, actions, right? And that was how they measured themselves. They went through the Ten Commandments, went tick, 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 great. We're we're not doing any of those things, so we have a a high opinion of ourselves. And they had a really good track record at it, by the way. But do not covet is a trickier commandment than it first appears. Because coveting isn't something that you do as an action. It's not something you can do with your hands, necessarily, with your eyes, with with your mouth. No, covet is something that you do with your heart. To covet something is to think deep down within I will only be truly satisfied if I can have this. Paul picks out coveting because it helps us to see how sin attacks in disguise. You might have seen the Mission Impossible films. I just watched uh, Fallout the other day. Great movie. Uh, And a classic Mission Impossible thing is at some point the the agents um, use the face mask, right? They put the face mask on, the voice changer, and, and in this particular one, they, uh, one of the agents um, posed as a colleague, a friend of the bad guy, to elicit uh, secret information from him. He kind of convinced him to spill all his secrets because he thinks, oh, this is just, uh, uh, this is my friend, this is my colleague. Sin works in kind of the same way. Right? It puts on a mask of external morality It tricks you into believing that you're a good person as long as you look like a good person. And at the same time, it blinds you to what's really there, what's actually happening in your heart. And Jesus spent a lot of time doing this. If you look at the the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Matthew, right? He takes um, commandment number six, do not murder. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you that if you are filled with anger towards someone, then you slay them in your heart. Or commandment seven, do not, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at someone lustfully in your heart, then you commit adultery in the spiritual sense, in emotional sense. That's why in verse 11, Paul says that sin deceived him at risk of yet another Lord of the Rings reference, it's Trixie. (laughs) As a Pharisee, he believed he was a good, law-abiding person, and that kept him assured that he was spiritually alive. I think that's what Paul means by saying that he was alive apart from the law. Like, apart from the real meaning of the law, it's true intent, he felt alive. He was deceived. It was insidious. Because he looked alive outwardly, But inwardly, he was among the living dead, an unknown victim of an assassin that was killing him secretly. And friends, that is the third way sin is like an assassin, because an assassin is a bringer of death. Look at verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. What is fruit? What's the fruit of death? Well, think of a person who seems to be content. Someone who seems to be really content with their lot. 
They don't chase after advancement. They, they only upgrade their devices when absolutely necessary. They are frugal with themselves and they're generous towards others. And yet, peel back the layers and underneath this hypothetical person is full of covetousness. They wouldn't admit it to themselves, but they are envious of what other people have. But instead of using it as an opportunity to grasp more and more, to grab things, they grow increasingly bitter towards those who have more than them and towards God who won't allow them more. Or think of a person who sees themselves as a very tolerant person, someone who's tolerant of all people, no matter what they come from or what they look like or who they are. And yet, when faced with someone they see as not as tolerant as themselves, they become a very different person. Not just a bit annoyed, but full of anger and rage. And as time goes on, they become more and more intolerant of a greater and greater portion of the population, all the people who are not as tolerant as they are. The moral philosopher Jonathan Haidt makes this observation. Human nature is not just intrinsically moral, it's also intrinsically moralistic, critical, and judgmental. In other words, we all have this internal moral compass that tells us what is right, what is wrong, but we also have an innate tendency to believe that we are more right, our compass is more straight and accurate than everyone else's. Psychologists use the word moralistic. Theologians use the word self-righteous. Whether a person is religious or not, if they evaluate their life based on how well they adhere to a set of rules, they will inevitably feel pride in their successes and scorn for others' failures. And what about if a whole society is like this? What if a whole society is moralistic and self-righteous? Well, it pulls itself apart because the left despises the right and the right despises the left. The rich look down on the poor while the poor hate the rich. And people are rated in what type of school they went to, what area they choose to live in, what their resume says. Do they drive or cycle? Do they bin or compost? This was no more apparent, I think, than after the recent election. So I went on Facebook and I saw this outpouring of abuse, of, of vindic vindictiveness against a whole group of the country who live on the other side of the country from people who assumed that they knew exactly why they voted the way they did, what their motives were, what their aspirations were. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. As I looked down my Facebook feed, I started to think, I'm so glad I'm not like that. How balanced I am. How, how not like those vindictive people I am. I'm so um, aware of things that I know not to have a go at people on the other side of the country or have a go at people who vote a certain way. It turns out that being self-righteous about self-righteous people is still self-righteousness. Isn't sin insidious? Do you see how it's like an assassin? It sneaks in when you least expect it. It blinds you to your own faults. It confirms your own biases. 
and objectifies people you disagree with and makes them your enemy. It's a poison. See, it's not just lawless people who are enslaved to sin. Sin loves to enslave the hearts of good, moral people, and it kills them softly and slowly and secretly. Paul wants us to know that if we think we are pretty good, then we probably aren't. That obeying any set of rules is not enough to transform your heart. So what's the alternative then? The alternative is we need to see and understand and believe how the gospel is like a marriage. In a movie Jackie and I watched the other night, a woman told her ex-boyfriend that she dumped him because he was married to his job. You ever heard that before? Both in real life probably and also in the movies. Often a reason for a breakup that you're married to your job. What what are they talking about? Well, she was saying that uh, he was so consumed with his work that their relationship suffered. At work he was alive, but with her he was dead. Paul uses the same idea in verses 1 to 3. Because he says that being married to the law is like being married to your job. You might feel alive trying to be a good person, but the law will consume you to the extent that you cannot also be in a relationship with God. You can only be married to one person, either to the law or to God. So he says our only hope then is to be free of our marriage, our union, with the law. And he uses this example from Jewish experience, which isn't too much like ours. He says, according to Jewish law, a person is only free to marry someone else if their spouse dies. So he uses this commonly known fact to say that the only way to stop being married to the law is if first one of you dies. <laughs> if we first, if we first die. Let's put it another way. He says, uh, being under the law is like being in a loveless marriage. It's just a contract of convenience. You, you stay faithful only because it's really beneficial for you. The law provides some assurance, some security, some sense of status, but there's no love in it. There's no passion. There's no excitement. You obey, sure, but only out of obligation because you must. People who have experienced that kind of relationship know what it is. It's a living hell. Paul says, you've got to get out of it. Verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. That's what happens when you become a Christian. The old self bound to the law dies away and a new self is created that belongs to another. You're remarried, so to speak to Jesus. The writers of the New Testament love to use this illustration of a marriage to describe the relationship between Christ and his church. And it's not kind of like you kind of romantic love that you fall in love with Christ. It doesn't get weird. It's about saying that Christ becomes your deepest love, your deepest and most precious possession. And this new marriage is legal and binding like a marriage should be. There's a legality to it. There's, there's obligations of faithfulness and service, you know, in sickness and health, for better and for worse. But unlike the old marriage to the law, this new marriage is deeply personal and full of love. 
we're given the ability to live as God intends. Yes, Christians should follow the law, but not out of selfish desire, not so we can earn favor or gain status or look down on others, but simply out of love. Marriage still requires obedience to its terms, but in a marriage of love, obedience is a joy. In my marriage of Jackie, right, we married five, six years, is, is, uh, it puts limits on all sorts of my freedoms, right? It does constrict me in a way. I mean, all marriages do. But when I'm full of love for Jackie, fulfilling my obligations to her, it's not a pain, it's not an annoyance, it's a joy. It fills me with life and love. But if I lose sight on what a marriage is based on, if I let my selfishness take over, then those very same obligations become deaf to me. They make me feel resentful of her. The same dynamic, I think, is true of us in Christ. When we abide in his love, obedience to him is a joy. But if we forget his goodness, if we take his grace for granted then soon we start treating our union with him like the old union with the law. We start believing that obedience is just a means to an end, a way of gaining the acceptance and love that we crave. But when Jesus has the first place in your heart, it changes everything, as every marriage does. Sin, uh, when, when Jesus has the first place in your heart, sin can't convince you to rebel against the lawgiver because you're in love with the lawgiver. He is your most precious love. And sin can't form you into a self-righteous person because you know that you're, just, you're like a peasant married to a prince. You had nothing but shame and rags, but now you're clothed in glory and righteousness. And so you can't really, you can't look down scornfully or self-righteously on anyone else because you know that everything you have is nothing but a gift from the one who was truly good, not something you could earn, not something you could ever gain or deserve. And I think this is what lies behind Paul's words in verse 6. But now, by dying to once once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. How can we serve God in this new way? How can we be moral but not moralistic? How, we can be, how can we be righteous but not self-righteous? Only by falling deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. Only by discovering anew each day who he really is. How lovely he is. Only by ensuring that our love is in response to his grace. Only by trusting that the heart of the gospel is that we can love because he first loved us. That's how we can serve God in a new way. And we could finish there. That would be very good. But this passage asks one more important question. It says, well, if that's the case then, is the law good for anything? Is it good for anything? Paul says quite the opposite. It is good. In fact, it is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. It makes for a terrible spouse but it makes for a very helpful and valuable spotlight. Why should Christians care about the law? Why should we read the Old Testament? And every uh, Sunday in the West, we have a reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We value it. Why? 
Because like a spotlight, the law sheds light on our reality. First, the law reveals what God is like. It highlights God's holy character. It shows us that God is perfect and holy and righteous and good, compassionate and merciful. The law highlights that God is worthy of devotion. That the first commandment is binding for all people. You shall have no other gods before me because only God as the glorious creator can claim our absolute allegiance. The law reveals what God is like. The law also reveals what sin is. And Paul makes his point over and over. Because if it were not for the law showing us the boundaries of godly living, we would not know what it means to step outside those boundaries. It maps out the inner workings of a person in rebellion against God. That they have all sorts of gods before God. (laughs) That they don't love their neighbor as themselves. That they are stuck in a living death. It helps. It's a a self-analysis tool. And because God is holy and we are sinful, the law reveals our need for grace. It shows us that we can't live up to God's standards. We can't meet the law's demands. That not one of us could come close to living a life to God's glory and for even for our own good. We are deceived by sin from the beginning, stuck in its perpetual cycles of death. And so most gloriously, the law reveals our need for a saviour. The entire story of the Bible is a lament that we cannot obey the law and a search for the one who can. And that search finds its end in Jesus. Because Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He obeyed the law perfectly and completely. He was extraordinary in that his external life, his words and his deeds matched perfectly with his internal life, his attitudes, his motivations. His heart was aligned to God's heart in the way that only one who is truly God ever could. So the law shows us above all else that all people need Jesus, that only he can give to those who are united with him his own record of right and wipe away their history of wrong. Only he, friends, can free us from being doomed to the cycles of sin. And only by his spirit living in us can we learn how to obey God truly. As Peter Adam um, said to me the other week, the law applies the law, the, the law apply, applies God's rules to our hearts badly. <laughs> but the spirit of Jesus applies them to our hearts perfectly. Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, replaces our lawlessness, but also our self-righteous lawfulness with his love and grace. And friends, that overflows to bear the fruit of life in our lives. So let's pray to God that that would be the case for us. Father, forgive us and show us what we're like. Show us how even our own good deeds are nothing but filthy rags compared to your perfection and holiness. Show us, Father, how sin is insidious and how it, takes, uh, it captivates our hearts even 
uh, in our attempts to be moral, even in our attempts to be righteous. Father, forgive us when our lives have been like a relationship without love, when it's been all about obligation and about trying to gain um, status, acceptance, position for ourselves. And Father, instead, draw us deeper into our marriage with Jesus Christ, one who loved us first so that we can respond with love, one who showed grace to us so that our life could abound with grace, one who teaches us to obey the, the law, not of obligation so we can gain something, but because he has already gained everything for us and so it calls us to respond with gratitude. May we be that sort of people, may we be that sort of church that shows a moralistic and self-righteous world what it means to be people of grace. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.